Good evening and welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Midweek Bible Study. We're glad you could join us this evening in what will be the next to last of our live Midweek Bible Studies, beginning in with what will be the second Wednesday of September by the time it gets here. Uh, these will be pre-recorded and I put a video out talking about some of the changes that are, are coming to how we do our live streams and how we do our video content. Um, you can check that out uh, on Facebook. I've posted that video there. Uh, there's a, a blog post about it on our website, MonroeChurchOfChrist.org. But in short, we are returning to in-person Bible classes here beginning uh, with the, the first Sunday in September. And when we do that, we're going to allow th those classes to remain um, somewhat private because um, the people who are going to be attending in person will uh, want the security of, of maybe not having that out online. And since I can't guarantee the, the consent of every person who attends to have their voice or their question or their discussion point brought out uh, into such a, a wide public place, we're going to allow that to be private. So we're going to take the lessons from Sunday morning and what will be Wednesday night starting in September Bible studies, and we're going to pre-record those and post them at the same time and in the same places that you've been watching already. Uh, we are launching an, an on-demand video library, which will feature all of our Bible class lessons in video form, as well as class lessons for uh, elementary, middle, and high school ages. There'll be some uh, other live stream um, programs that we'll be bringing your way in the fall, and you can check back for more information about that. But what it means for you uh, who are watching uh, and have been watching our series that we're in right now and just wrapping up how we got the Bible, it means that we'll have this week and we will finish this series next week, September the 1st, and um, that, that'll be on Wednesday, uh, or actually September the 2nd on Thursday, and then the following week, uh, our Wednesday night Bible studies will be pre-recorded at that, at that point. So uh, live tonight and live next week, but then starting Sunday, which will be the 5th of September, um, the Bible lessons will be pre-recorded. Worship will still be live. You can still join us for that. And we hope you will. Uh, more details on all of that are on, on that uh, video I posted yesterday. So we are going to uh, now in our penultimate uh, installment of how we got the Bible, deal with the aftermath of the death of William Tyndale. Now, this, this has been a long and uh, very far-reaching sort of survey of the history of, of the Bible, the history of our 66 books, our canon. We've taken it from its authorship and its, its changes and its compilation into the translations and into a bit of history which deals with the difficulty that existed in getting the Bible out to the average person and getting the Bible into common languages that were commonly spoken. Uh, we know the history of the Catholic Church and the Latin Vulgate, and Latin remained the, the primary language of, of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church's Bible, but efforts were being made to get it into English and get it into a language that was spoken by common people so that they could read for themselves, so that they could study for themselves, so that they could learn what the Bible really said and see that there were some things going on, some corruption and things that were, were uh, not what the Reformers believed were pleasing to God. And William Tyndale was one of those who worked tirelessly to translate, and he did, in fact, translate the Bible 
into English. He developed the English language, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I mean, he was one of the primary forces in giving us English as a standardized language. So uh, this man had an incredible impact on history, and all of it was in service to getting the Word of God out. You don't hear that uh, talked about in, in the history classes, that one of the reasons we have the English language was to find a standardized Western language in which the Bible could be printed, and William Tyndale helped to do that. His death, however, which we talked about last week, did not end the work of spreading the English Bible. People began uh, hearing more and more sermons as more and more English copies of Scripture were disseminated. People began hearing sermons and reading uh, books and, and pamphlets and papers on this idea of freedom in Christ. Uh, and it was something so transformative because it, it, was a, it was about breaking free of the bonds of this quasi-church, quasi-political force that was at that time the Roman Catholic Church. And it really bled into some other areas of philosophy because it had to do with freedom in Christ, but also the dignity of mankind and the challenging of authority, the freedom to challenge authority. Remember, we're, we're talking about, we're coming out of the medieval times and what will ultimately put an end to the, the, um, the this system of, of serfs and, and, and this kind of caste system that existed um, in, the middle, in the Middle Ages. What put a, an end to that system uh, of classes was... Uh, the philosophies that came to light as a result of people being able to read the Bible because they were reading about God freeing us from the bondage of the law and they're reading about this freedom in Christ and this great liberty that we have. And so, so much of Western thought, Western political thought even, was influenced by people reading the Bible. And it, it's really fascinating to trace that. And so, following Tyndale's death, more and more of this was happening throughout parts of England and Western Europe as people were speaking English, reading English, and reading Scripture in English. And that brings us to one of William Tyndale's friends who we uh, mentioned briefly last week, a man named Miles Coverdale. Miles Coverdale um, was, was, uh, was an author and a printer, and he took, uh, he took on the task of of printing, continuing the work that Tyndale left behind of printing scripture. King Henry VIII was still king in England, and he, by this time he has now decided he, would, he wants an English Bible in England. He wants the Bible in English. And he wants this because he is at war with the Catholic Church, because they will not grant him a divorce. Uh, he's tired of killing his wives, so he decided he would actually start divorcing them. They will not grant him annulment in his marriage, so he goes to war with Catholicism over this uh, rather selfish reason, but God uses all kinds of events for his good and for his will, and this would be one of them. So Henry, in his fight against Catholicism, decides he wants the Bible to be printed and distributed in English, but he does not want William Tyndale's name on it. Remember, Tyndale was no friend of Henry either because he spoke out against Henry and his sinful behavior, and so because of that beef with Tyndale, he did, not want, uh, he did not want his name on it. So he asks Coverdale to publish the Bible in English and to do so without the name of Tyndale on it. So uh, Coverdale, along with some of his associates, uh, they, they print the, uh, the, the Bible in English. And, and when printing the Bible in English, they called it the Matthew Bible. You may have heard of that. 
They call it the Matthew Bible, and in the dedication of this printing, it is, it is noted that Matthew is the name that is standing in for the one who shall not be named. Uh, it sounds very much like, like Harry Potter, but the one that, should not, that shall not be named was William Tyndale. They were honoring the memory of William Tyndale by publishing the Matthew Bible using Matthew as this uh, pseudonym, if you will, for, for Tyndale, because it was his work. It was his translation. It was his effort that made it happen. Now, in Britain at this time, and in fact, it's still the case in many parts of the world, you had to have a license to print something. You couldn't just print whatever you wanted whenever you wanted and put it out there like we can here in the United States for the most part. Uh, you had to have a license from the king, from the authorities. Uh, and, and so Henry authorized the publishing of the Bible, the Matthew Bible, in English, but he only would allow enough Bibles to be printed that there could be one for every church in England. It was still going to be a book of the church. It was not intended to be a Bible that people would have in their homes, although they would have been able to read it. And so Henry grants some authority to print Bibles, but limits them. And from what we can tell in history, although he did limit their authority under this license to print only for the church, uh, there were individuals uh, who, would, uh, who would get Bibles, and there's no evidence that this law was ever enforced. We don't see any evidence that uh, people, when they got a hold of these Matthew Bibles in their, in their personal life, that uh, they were ever uh, found guilty of any kind of crime. Uh, the reason that they didn't want the Bibles in the hands of individuals is the same reason that the Catholic Church before Henry didn't want that, because the more people could read, the more they could know for themselves. And when the church is one and the same with the state, that means that not only is it a threat to the church and their power, but it's a threat to the government's power, to the king's power. And so they did not want the people to be able to read and to uh, sort of uh, be illuminated in, into the things that the Bible had to say. They wanted to be able to make it say whatever they wanted to continue and, uh, and hold power. So uh, at this time, uh, between 1539 and 1541, uh, we have the printing of, of this Bible. And, um, and people could now, for the first time, read and hear the entire Bible preached uh, in English, uh, known as the Great Bible, and uh, and it was it, it was a very good translation because because Tyndale had done such immaculate work uh, with this translation. The King Henry died in 1547, and his successor was Edward VI. Edward VI did not live very long, but he was a fantastic king. He was a, a wonderfully great king. He lifted in his time all of the bans on Bible printing, and now. Uh, the Bible could be printed um, with, with, with no restriction in England and in the language of English. But he died in 1563. So with the death of Edward, now comes a woman who would come to be known as Bloody Mary. And she was a Catholic. Now here Edward was, and he was a Protestant, um, but, uh, but Mary comes along as a Catholic. And in her time, she sought to defend the Catholic Church and stamp out Protestantism. And in her time, there were 300 reformers burned, uh, more than 300 reformers burned at the stake. And, and for five years, she waged war on Protestants. 
It's important to know, and you can see this history in, in Great Britain. When you go to the churches over there, you will see the evidence. You will see knights buried in cathedrals. You will see the flags of armies because war and the church are very much linked in the history of, of England. And in fact, it's probably led to the sharp decline in, in churches in Great Britain. Um, maybe 5% or less of people uh, in England are, are churchgoers. So as Bloody Mary is raging through the land to uh, destroy and stamp out Protestantism, Coverdale and his associate John Fox are forced to flee. And when they flee, they find themselves with safe haven in the city of Geneva. Geneva was a safe haven for Protestants as it was run by a man named John Calvin. Yes, that John Calvin, the Calvin of Cal uh, Calvinism. Uh, John Calvin, a reformer himself, um, was uh, a, a brand of Protestant that tended to be very, very conservative. Uh, and, and they could be almost as bad on the Protestant side as the Catholics were on their side. Uh, and Calvin ruled over Geneva, and, and you were safe there as long as he liked you. And so uh, it was in Geneva that, that um, uh, Coverdale and Fox began to translate Tyndale's work again. And uh, they, they produced, uh, and, and that was no problem. Tyndale himself never stopped revising, never stopped trying to sharpen the language and explain things better. And so Coverdale and Fox took his work and they expanded on it and they created the Geneva Bible. And that's another one you may have heard of. The Geneva Bible was not only a very faithful and very accurate translation of scripture, but it included things like cross-references. It included things like definitions and, and notes, study notes. This was, in fact, the world's first study Bible because you could read it and not only have the scriptures, but you could have information about the scriptures, ways that you could connect the scriptures to one another, ways you could understand what certain words meant and the context of them. The Geneva Bible was a, a, a retranslation of Tyndall's work, but it had these textual notes. And as the first study Bible, it was designed for home use. This was designed to be the kind of the homeschool textbook. And many families would teach their children reading by using the Geneva Bible. And so over in, in Europe, because of this, uh, independent churches continued to spring up. And this movement of Protestantism and reform continued to grow, but this impacted politics as well. Because as people began to read, they began to understand some things, as we said earlier, things about liberty and freedom and, and Jesus as the, as the king of kings. And they were finding their own loyalty to their king to be waning because of this understanding. And so this was really the beginning of the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and, and <clears throat> fiefdom and, and these, these classes well, because the enlightenment was coming. Enlightenment was coming through people understanding scripture and understanding God in his word. The ideas of liberty were interwoven with scripture and it influenced so many thinkers of the time who would influence other thinkers who would ultimately influence those who helped found our country, the United States, a place that is very strange in the course of world history because of its uh, declarations that liberty is, is what? Read, read our founding documents. Liberty is God-given. That's what our founders said. It's God that gives you these rights, and they established a government whose sole purpose was merely to protect those rights. Um, 
and, and all of this really can trace some lineage back to the reformers and to Tyndale and to Coverdale and Fox and the work they did. And this, um, <clears throat> this really wreaked havoc with Mary as well. Um, Mary, Bloody Mary, she, she knew she couldn't stop what was happening. And so she sought to simply control it. So she had, uh, she gathered together some scholars and created what was called the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible, and it's important to remember, the bishops, um, when we say bishops, they are, they are a part of the government. Now they oversee the church, but they're a part of the government. And so a bishop would oversee many congregations, many churches, but they were a functionary of the government. And so Mary declared that the Bishop's Bible, which had none of the notes and none of the cross-references and was not really that great of a translation, it was very much a broken kind of uh, sharp and hard-to-understand translation, uh, the, the, the Bishop's Bible was declared to be the only version to be used in Britain. And it was a bit of a step backwards. It was a bit of a step backwards for Mary to do this. However... Now let's think, remember Mary was Catholic and here were the reformers and the Protestants with their Geneva Bible and their Matthew Bible and Mary said, well, I need to do something about this so I'm going to put out my own version, the Bishop's Bible and it's going to be more in our favor in the way it's translated and used and this will be the, the, church, or the Bible of the church in England, the Catholic church in England. Now think about this for a minute. This seems like a step backwards, but what was the goal of William Tyndale? to get the Bible in English to be given to the people that spoke the language. And now it's been a mere 46 years after the death of William Tyndale, and there is a Bible in English at, used in England. We now have the full Bible in English. The Catholic Church has the full Bible in English. After all these years and centuries of fighting for their Latin Vulgate and for their translations, the work of William Tyndale actually won. Tyndale won this battle to get the Bible in English. The Catholic Church had an English Bible for the first time because Mary could not stop the wave of Protestantism and reform that was coming. Uh, the Bishop's Bible was ultimately never very popular because of some of its shortcomings that I mentioned. And this really goes to why we have translations and why we have different versions. Because versions should always, certain translations and versions of the Bible should always suit the audience that you're after. Um, and the accuracy of translation does not necessarily mean ease of reading either. Um, the most popular, or perhaps the most accurate, let's go with this, the most accurate translation of the Bible, word for word, is probably the New American Standard Bible. It used to be the American Standard Version, ASV. Now it's the New American Standard Bible. Um, it's kind of hard to read. It's, it's my preferred uh, Bible that I often teach from and preach from, but it, it's, it's not the easiest to read. More popular has been the New International Version, the NIV, and they're constantly refining and, and, and changing it to try and make it more understandable. And there are a plethora of other versions, but the point is that... Uh, as the Bible is translated and revised, and not revised for content, but revised for clarity, um, it's all done in the service of trying to get it to be more understandable by the average person. It's also interesting that there are different versions of the English language. Now remember, Tyndale was making an effort to standardize English. 
Um, there continue to be different forms of English in use. The Bishop's Bible was written in a particular type of English, but Tyndale's Bible was in a more common form of English, and it won out ultimately. It won out because more people could read it. It also won out because some of the great uh, movers of the English language, some of the people who were the early authors and early playwrights like William Shakespeare and Dunn and others, uh, they wrote in English and they wrote in Tyndale's English. So this man had a great influence that lasted so, so long and went so deep. Tyndale's work with the English language changed even some things about theology. In most languages, there are two forms of the word you, as an example. Now, in English, there, there were two forms of the word you. We don't have two forms of it anymore in our common English. We don't use two different words for the word you. But in most cultures, in most languages, there is. There is a formal you. If you're talking to someone like your boss or like uh, someone who who's, has power or authority over you. And then there's the common, like you're talking to a friend. That's the case in most every language. Uh, in French, vous would be the formal you, uh, or tu would be the informal you. In English, in this time, in Tyndale's time, there were two different forms of the word you. There was the informal, which was, which was you. Or, excuse me, I got that backwards. There was the formal, which was you. And there was the informal, which was thee or thou. Now, when we say thee or thou today... Uh, we think of that as more formal because that's we, you know we joke about that saying uh, uh, you know that that's King James language or whatever because that's the King James Bible which we'll get to soon enough. Uh, thee and thou sounds very old-fashioned. It sounds very formal to us. But when Tyndale wrote, thee and thou was the informal. That was the common, friendly form of the word you, and the word you was was more formal. Now think about how Tyndale translated and how that changed the way we think about God, when he would use a pronoun as someone speaking to God, they would refer to God with thee and thou, the informal, not in an irreverent way, but in a familial way. This is talking to your father, talking to uh, your friend, talking to someone who is close and intimate with you. Now, even though we think the opposite about those words today, Tyndale used common pronouns for God. He was using what we would call the redneck language, the hick language. He was using the language of the country folk. He was using the language that people spoke. And that's why his translation, which evolved from the Matthew Bible to the Geneva Bible, was the most popular and widely used. Now, we're going to move away from the Catholics for a little bit. Okay, We're going to take a break beating them up. And again, we don't do this uh, because we have something against the Catholics. We're acknowledging history. The Roman Catholic Church uh, ha had a very difficult period of time uh, as they were mixed up in politics and in nation building and, and, uh, and, and became very corrupt. And we must acknowledge what that did and, and what that brought about in history. So now we're going to switch to the Protestants. We're going to beat them up a little bit, okay, because they had their own problems too. Eventually, the Protestants start fighting each other. They start arguing. Um, and now this would have been a point that the Catholic Church would have looked at and said, I told you so. Remember, their whole defense of this highly centralized power in church was so we can all be united, so we can all have a agreement on one way of doing things and one interpretation and one viewpoint. And you Protestants, you wanted this freedom, and now you got it, and now you're just arguing amongst yourselves. 
Well, of course, that's always been a problem throughout history with Christians. It still is. But nonetheless, they continued to fight each other. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther uh, in Germany and uh, Zwingli in, uh, in Switzerland uh, were so opposed to one another, arguing primarily over the Lord's Supper, I believe it was, was their main contention. Their followers actually formed armies and fought each other. There were actually like holy wars fought uh, between armies of Protestants that fought over scriptural and doctrinal issues. We're not quite that bad today, but it, it was true then. There was a man named John Knox who was a bit of a uh, disciple of Calvin, and he brought Calvinism to Scotland, and John Knox was the most hardline conservative Calvinist that may have ever walked the planet. He came to Scotland, stripping the church of all of its beauty, stripping down everything that was ornate, getting rid of everything that appeared to have any sort of uh, earthly beauty to it or, or anything that was joyful about religion, and stripped it down and made it very stoic, uh, almost very angry. Uh, John Knox brought a lot of pain to the area. Um, they would, they would, they were not above killing people that that they disagreed with, uh, other Protestants as well as Catholics, um, in an effort to bring reform to Scotland. And uh, and it was a very sad time. We need to talk a little bit because we're we're getting this to, and where we're going to end this series is with the uh, the translation of the King James Bible, because that's pretty much where gets us to where we are now. Once the King James Bible is translated, and once we have a codified 66 books, or really initially 80 some odd books, uh, with the King James Bible, uh, once we get to that point, we um, we we have it. We have it now, and from that, everything else has flowed. Uh, but we do need to talk about the history of Scotland to get us there, because that's where King James is from. So um, at this time, the Scots and, uh, and England, Sc Scotland and England are separate. They're independent countries. Uh, you have Bloody Mary in England, and then you have a Scottish king uh, ruling over Scotland. Now, he is to be married to a woman from France, uh, but she was a cousin of Bloody Mary. Uh, but she comes up from France to marry the King of Scotland, but the King of Scotland dies pretty quickly. And so Mary, Queen of Scots, becomes the queen there, but she's quickly run out of town because they don't want this foreigner coming in. Now her husband's dead. She's not really the queen, so they run her out. Well, she goes to England to live with her cousin, Bloody Mary. Uh, that should have been the first hint that that's not who you want to be uh, sharing an Airbnb with. But nonetheless... Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, is protected by Bloody Mary until, uh, or excuse me, I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. She goes to England because Bloody Mary has died. Here we go. Bloody Mary dies, and Elizabeth takes her place. Now, Elizabeth provides protection as a cousin to, to Mary, Queen of Scots, provides protection for her, uh, until Elizabeth starts to feel like perhaps this woman may be a threat. She may be a threat to me and my power. She may be trying to take the throne. Um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth also takes control of Scotland and brings Scotland into the kingdom. And so, as Mary, Queen of Scots, has run out of there, she goes to be with Elizabeth until Elizabeth determines her to be a threat and has her beheaded. Now, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a son. His name was James. And eventually, uh, Elizabeth would die. And there would be some debate over who would be the next in line. And it falls 
to James, and he becomes King James. During this time, the Bible of the time was the Geneva Bible. And Knox, remember, we, we talked about him, uh, John Knox, he pressured James to uh, accept the Geneva Bible as the official Bible, but he wanted nothing to do with it, okay? And that's, that's where we're headed with this. Now, backing up a little bit, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, had expanded Great Britain's power, expanded the empire, had uh, really broken the foreign nations that were constantly rising up, the Spains, the France, the Portugals, had, had defeated the Catholic Church as they tried to raise up armies through these other nations to fight these proxy wars with the Anglican Church and with Protestantism. And so the Catholics and the Protestants are fighting throughout Great Britain, throughout England, throughout Scotland. And uh, in, during this time, uh, Elizabeth, for all that she's done and accomplished in making Great Britain the predominant superpower of the world, she dies, and they come together to decide who the next in line is, and as it happens, it is King James, her or cousin's son. Uh, so some kind of a cousin in there. So James becomes the king. Now, understand something about the Church of England. You have, you have the, the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have the Church of England that Henry VIII helped to, to, to get started and break from the Catholic Church. But even within the Church of England, amongst the Protestants, there were different factions. You had um, the Episcopalians, or the Anglicans. Uh, Episcopalians had, were the, the, the predominant Church of England, of Great Britain, and that was bishops who were functionaries of the state, overseeing multiple churches. And then you had the Presbyterians. Presbyterians would have been in Scotland. And the Presbyterians had local congregations with elderships overseeing them. So something much more aligned to what we see in, in, in churches here in our time. Uh, independent, autonomous congregations that are run by elderships. So James, being Scottish, was a Presbyterian. And, but secretly, see, the Scots are thinking, okay, this is our time. Here comes King James. He's going to bring in uh, Presbyterianism to, the, to the, the Church of England and make that the predominant uh, function of, of the church. But secretly, James really didn't like Presbyterianism. James hated the Presbyterian Church because the Presbyterian Church did not protect people in power. When you decentralize the power of the church, you're also decentralizing the power of the throne. Because remember, church and state are the same thing at this point. Whether it's Roman Catholic or whether it's the Church of England, church and state are the same thing. And when you remove the power of the church and you decentralize it, you're decentralizing the power of the government. So the king did not have his power protected by bishops. There was no one to enforce the rules. And he did not want the independence in the churches because he feared it would lead to egalitarianism and 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 equal rights, crazy things like equality for all people or freedom uh, from the government. So James is stuck between a bit of a rock and a hard place. He does not like Presbyterianism. He wants to have his power protected. He prefers the structure of Episcopalians, but he knows that the Scots, from where he came, are going to rebel and try to unseat him if he goes against the Presbyterians. Also, uh, other factions at play in the, in the Church of England at this time are the Puritans. The Puritans were some of the original settlers of our nation, of our land. The Pilgrims, we might call them, uh, from, from Thanksgiving lore, the Mayflower and whatnot, those were Puritans. 
And so James has a bit of a, a, a difficult task. He has got to be a great politician. He's got to not let the Puritans win, but he's got to make them think that he likes them. So he's got to appease all of these different groups, um, all while trying to sustain and solidify his power, make the Scots happy, their Presbyterian uh, uh, ideas happy, while also protecting himself. So in 1598, he wrote a paper. And he wrote a paper, and it basically said that access to God comes through the king, and that you, the, God has put the king in place, and therefore you, you, you can only get to God through the king. You should respect and honor and be loyal to your king because he is, in effect, a representation, a manifestation of God on earth. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds very similar to something that they fought against not that long ago, and that would become a source of contention as James believed that kings ruled nations as representatives of God. In fact, some Puritans and Presbyterians disliked this idea, although the Episcopalians were pleased by it. They came and they showed him notes from the Geneva Bible itself regarding Daniel and how he disobeyed his king but was seen with honor in the eyes of God. This all goes back to the idea that James wanted nothing to do with the Geneva Bible. He did not, although it was the predominant version of the Bible at the time, he did not want that to be the version that people used. He did not want that to be the Bible that was used in the church. And he wanted to protect his throne against the Puritans and against the Presbyterians. And uh, as he was on his way to England to take the throne, he was met by a thousand ministers of the Puritan church. And they asked him, in this petition that they showed him to loosen the restrictions of the Anglican Church. They had some issues with the Episcopalians. They thought they were too Catholic. They had these vestments, and these were all the things that, that uh, Elizabeth had done and that Bloody Mary had done uh, leading to, to this time. They, they wore these vestments, these garments. They held these offices, these, these spiritual offices. There was kneeling. There was the crossing of oneself. Um, and there were all of these things that were a part of the ritual of the Anglican Church that the Puritans and the Presbyterians did not like because they thought they were too Catholic. In fact, they would use, they would use uh, terms uh, regarding that being uh, these, um, they would call it popery, uh, <laughs> evidence of popery, uh, as in the Pope. There was, there was too much popery going on, they would say. And so one of the things also that they, they petitioned against was they wanted relief from excessive and inappropriate tithing. And we think of tithing, we think of giving to the church. Remember, church and state are the same thing. The nicest houses in town, the biggest mansions in town were the bishop's houses, the preacher's houses, because they were essentially levying taxes in the form of tithes. If you want to be pleasing to God and in good standing with the church and the community, you had to pay a tithe. And that tithe not only went to the operation of the church, it went to lining the pockets of the bishops and the preachers and the priests. And this was the corruption that existed in Catholicism, and this was the corruption that continued to exist in certain forms of Protestantism, primarily the, primarily the Anglican and Episcopalian churches. So now we've come from Catholicism into Protestantism. We've got English Bibles in England. We've got even different versions of it. But now we're running up against the butting of heads because as much as the people are yearning for liberty in Christ and freedom that they're finding in their scriptures, they are seeing that the church now looks exactly like what they tried to reform and fight against. 
They have all of the same corruptions, all of the same problems. So the people are wanting this. There's movements growing and beginning. And here comes King James into this whole situation where, um, where he has the, the Presbyterians and the Puritans on the one side. He has the Episcopalians on the other side. And wanting to protect his power, but also protect his life, he somehow has to serve both of these groups. He's in a very difficult spot. He's in a very difficult spot as he is petitioned by the Puritans and the Presbyterians to undo all of these aspects of the Anglican Church that were too much popery for them. In the meantime, bishops from the Anglican Church sent their own delegation, and they tried to force James to turn against the Puritans. And they assigned a bishop to do this. And his name was Richard Bancroft. Richard Bancroft would prove to be instrumental in the decision ultimately to translate the Bible again and to produce another version of the English Bible that we now call the King James Version. Boy, drinking from a fire hose does not begin to describe how challenging some of this is because we're getting into some deep history stuff. Um, but it's important to understand because all the work that's been done from people like Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale, and those others we've mentioned, to get the Bible into a common language, to get it into the hands of the people, they succeeded. They've gotten to the point where that's been successful. And now Protestant Reformation has largely succeeded in England, but it has given rise to more factions within Protestantism, and the ever-pressing desire for people in power to remain in power continues to plague the church. Do you understand now why the founders of our country thought so highly of the idea of separating church and state? Because this was what it led to for them. It led to warring factions that were complicated not by the scripture and by the doctrine, but complicated by the people who were in charge wanting to stay in charge. And King James has to find a political solution here to appeasing his countrymen in Scotland, the, the Puritans, and pleasing the Episcopalian Anglican sect where he now sat on the throne. And Richard Bancroft, as an agent of the Anglican Church, as a bishop, is going to make an effort to turn James against the Puritans, and we'll pick up there next week. And we'll get through that next week and into how the King James Bible came to be. And at that point, we will have completed the story, at least as far as we're concerned. The Bible, from authorship to printing, the King James Version, that story will be complete next week. Thank you for joining us. Hope you to see you Sunday morning. This coming Sunday morning, we will be live again for our Bible class where we'll conclude the epistles of John and have our worship service. And then starting, um, not, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday at, or the Sunday after that, uh, we, will, we will be pre-recorded in our Bible classes and continuing to be live in worship. So much changing, but so much uh, all for good. And we're glad that you're with us through that. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next time.